Um, I am mixing it up today by extending our scripture reading. Uh, instead of going through 1 through 15, we're going to go through 1 through 30. And I didn't tell anybody I was going to do this. You want to know why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I want you to listen. It's a story that we, who have been in the church for a while, have heard time and time again. And I want you to listen to the story in a new way. Um, one of the things that I want to point out before we start reading this is that in the book of John, and you know, all throughout scripture, we're going to talk a little bit about how we read the Bible and ways that we can read the Bible in fulfilling and, and um, insightful and thoughtful ways. Um, this passage is often read alone, as are many of the familiar passages of the Bible, but they were never intended to be read alone. They are intended to be understood within the context of the stories that are happening around it. And so um, this passage in John 4 comes after Nicodemus, that story of the man who came to Jesus at night and was asking Jesus questions. And then there's stories that follow this all the way through to chapter 9 of people having these individual encounters with Jesus and how they, through all of their different circumstances, respond to Jesus and answer that uh, call or that longing that Jesus issues to them, that offering of faith. So, without further ado, let's turn to, well, don't turn to anything. I'm going to turn to John 4, verses 1 through 30. Uh, sometimes this is called Jesus who talks with Samaritan woman. Sometimes this is called the woman at the well. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who, was baptized, who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. For those of you who will remember the Samaritans and the Jewish people, they had some similarities. They were like cousins who had been feuding for uh, decades and decades. Um, they now saw each other as enemies. They both had a belief in the same God, but a very different approach and understanding and interpretation to how God worked in the world. So Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a, a, a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband to come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, which sounds a little harsh, but you know, it was ancient times. Cut the guy a break. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And then what happens after this is that she, upon realizing that she is speaking to the Messiah, is so overwhelmed and encouraged by the situation that she leaves her, her bucket to get the water, her jar, and she runs off to tell the town people. God, we are grateful for the way that you show up in our lives in both expected and unexpected ways and for the way that you speak into our lives from whatever place we stand, from places that are um, joyful and strong and also from places that are weak and broken. We pray that as we come to your scripture today that we come seeking the truth of your spirit, that we come looking for how we might be more authentic, how we might engage one another more authentically, how we might engage you more authentically. And that understanding that when you, when you, Jesus, engaged people authentically, then they were transformed by hope and by love, by promise, by worth. This is what we want, Lord. We want to feel those things for ourselves and we want others around us to feel that. So please teach us today in that journey of your spirit, how we too can be people who, by just a few simple words, can ignite hope in the hearts of those around us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So given the way that many preachers have and commentators have told this story before over recent decades, many of us may hear a story about repentance in this story about the woman at the well, mostly as a result of the comment that Jesus makes about her having had five husbands and not living with her husband currently. So just really quickly, I want to take a poll. Raise your hand if you have heard this story interpreted like that, an interpretation about this woman of the well where Jesus exposes her sin and that that is what she is responding to when she asks for living water. How many of you have heard that? Raise your hands high. Right, okay, good. Because that's a very common interpretation of this scripture passage. But before we really look at this story, I want to take just a little sidebar here to say something a little bit about how we read scripture. 
There are a few shorthand rules about reading scripture that are really, really helpful and don't require a master's in divinity to understand, but it can help us in um, creating a little bit of depth and, and richness in engaging the Bible. So one of these rules is paying attention to repetition because the Bible repeats things that it believes are important. And so if it says it more than once, it's important for us to listen to that. We've talked about that here before, am I right? Number two, another one of these rules is that the Bible is first about God and not first about us. What I mean by that is that reading the Bible is easier if we read each passage to first learn about God's character and don't read the Bible in some attempt to reveal the great mysteries of the universe or of human nature or somehow to interpret what social norms should be or, or what God is hoping that the social norms are going to be etc., etc. Um, it, it's much more helpful if we read the Bible looking for God's character and how God's character is being revealed in interacting with creation. Another one of these rules about reading the Bible, and this is one that applies to us today, is that rarely is the Bible primarily interested in simple morality claims. What I mean by that is, when you read a passage like this one today, and the only thing that you hear interpreted out of it is, well, the woman was a sinner who needed Jesus to forgive her, and that gave her hope, then we should remain suspicious. Because outside of the book of Proverbs, very, very little the Bible has to say is cut and dry, black and white, truth be told, easy peasy. Much about the Bible is simple but not easy. So, so one of the things that I think is important for us to remember, if we hear the Bible interpreted in a simple morality claim, then it's wise for us to continue to dig, to continue to ask more. And this goes double for the stories that are about women or are about foreigners or are about anyone who is not a Jewish-Israelite man. Because over the decades, many of these stories about women and immigrants and other non-male, non-Jewish Israelite characters have been retold by preachers and commentators with a whole bunch of stuff in them that isn't actually in Scripture. Our case in point for this is our Scripture passage for today, where many preachers will say that this woman was a prostitute at the worst or an adulteress at the least, who was led to repentance, and who desired forgiveness. It's really important for us right from the outset to note that none of that is actually in the scripture. None of that is said by Jesus or is recorded by the gospel writer. That interpretation is a story that has been overlaid onto this passage so many times that many people don't even question it anymore. But if it were true, then the Jesus who had no problem pointing out people's sins and then forgiving them for those sins probably would have pointed out that she was sinning and would have forgiven her. But he doesn't. Because the point of the story, my friends, is not that she is a sinner who is somehow avoiding the townsfolk in shame. The point of the story is that 
there was a woman who engaged with Jesus, who wrestled with him by asking him questions, and who emerged from that interaction with faith, with hope, with love. If we're going to talk about taking off the mask in regard to our scripture for today, I really must say that first, we need to take the mask off of what has been overlaid onto this story. Because there is a lot more depth and richness to this tale about the woman at the well than a simple morality tale of a sinner who came to Jesus and was forgiven. So another thing that's helpful for us to remember when we're reading the Bible is that ancient writers didn't have a goal of being strict documentarians. All right, so the concept of history that we have today of meticulously recording dates and times and specifics, that was not a concept that ancient writers held for themselves. The Gospels really are a new genre of literature in ancient times, in part because they did include these historical references of the life and ministry of Jesus that was a little atypical. But still, the Gospel writers continue to employ symbolic imagery. And they did this to give clues to the ancient hearers about what each person should hear in the story, about what was about to come about. So a great example of this is in the chapter before this, in John 3, the story about Nicodemus, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night. You remember that? Give me a nod if you do. Yeah. He comes to see Jesus at night. And that may be historically factual, but the more important thing about this is that it is symbolism. When the gospel writer saw darkness and nighttime, when they're talking about darkness and nighttime, they're using it as a symbol of secrecy and suspicion and shame. The symbolism of Nicodemus meeting Jesus at night isn't just a fun fact. And it's intended to foreshadow the point of the story. Because when ancient hearers heard that it was nighttime, they already knew that there was going to be something tense and secretive and maybe unlevel about this meeting. Because things at night happen in secrecy, right? So the same goes for when Jesus meets someone in daylight. Because light in ancient writing is a symbol of truth and integrity. So when the gospel writer says that the woman meets Jesus in the light of the day, we don't believe that they're insinuating that she's avoiding anyone. Quite the opposite, right? Nicodemus was the one who was avoiding being seen, not this woman. She's not avoiding someone. She is standing out into the bright, open light. The writer is foreshadowing what is about to come. She's not avoiding anything, but she's bringing her whole self into an encounter for Jesus, and she should be praised for it. You understanding what I'm saying about this? All right, good. So then the question is, even though that all might be well and good and she's standing in the light and 
you know, it's not necessarily insinuating that something bad is about to come or that she's about to repent or that she's a sinner. What's going on then with Jesus in this conversation about the five husbands? Commentator David Lose, he says this. He says, neither John as the narrator or Jesus as the central character apply the information behind that story. What we do know is that Jesus at no point invites repentance or, for that matter, speaks of sin at all. She very easily could have been widowed or could have been abandoned or divorced. Five times would be heartbreaking, but not impossible. Further, she could now be living with someone that she was dependent on or be in what's called a leveret marriage, where a childless woman is married to her deceased husband's brother in order to produce an heir, but is not technically considered to be the brother's wife. So there are any number of ways, in fact, that one might imagine this woman's story as tragic rather than scandalous. Robert Hoke builds on that. He says, The woman's condition in life seems depressingly routine. A job going nowhere, her relationships almost like her work. Every day she goes to the well, a painful reminder that her lot belongs in the exclusionary shadows of gender and ethnicity and condition. I hear a sense of crushing disappointment in her life as she talks to Jesus, in the drudge work assigned to her, or going to the well of promise. Men who said that they were going to take care of her only to find that the well of covenant had run dry. What the commentators are saying is this. The mask that this woman wears is not a mask of sin and shame, but perhaps a mask of monotony and drudgery and anonymity. In this story, unlike that story of Nicodemus, this woman doesn't even have a name. The social systems that she has relied on to support her, sustain her, provide her security, they all appear to be failing her. From the perspective of the disciples and of the Jewish community, she's born an enemy. She's anathema. Jesus shouldn't even be speaking to her. So in many facets of her life, this woman is invisible to the world around her and is neglected of consideration, even basic considerations falling through cracks and the rips of a social fabric that she was supposed to be woven into, that she thought she was woven into. So when this woman meets Jesus, and Jesus sees her, Jesus knows her circumstances with certainty, even if we today are unsure about what the specifics of those circumstances are, that act of being seen is enough to draw up faith in her. David Lowe says this. He says, immediately after Jesus describes her past, she says, I see that you are a prophet and asks him where one should worship. And it's important to keep in mind that seeing in John is an important theological activity. To see is often connected with belief. So when the woman says, I see you are a prophet, she is making a confession of faith. But why? Because Jesus has seen her. He has seen her plight of dependence. He has recognized her 
spoken with her, offered her something of incomparable worth. He has seen her, which means she exists for him and has worth and value and significance. And all of this is treatment to which she was unaccustomed. And so when he speaks of her past, both knowingly and compassionately, she realizes she's in the presence of a prophet and eventually in the presence of the Messiah. Friends, if there is ever a story in Scripture that shows how the power of being truly seen and of being truly known, of being recognized and accepted, can change our lives, then really, this might be it. Because if you'll notice, Jesus doesn't fix her situation. He doesn't ensure her more security or more autonomy or more anything. She leaves her encounter with Jesus in the same physical circumstances that she met him. Jesus didn't change her physical circumstances, but by truly seeing her, by conveying some understanding and maybe some compassion toward her life's experience, that woman leaves Jesus completely changed. She leaves Jesus with a sense of worth and validation, and that worth and that validation changes her life. So much so that the woman leaves Jesus determined to share what she has just experienced with others. Most of us here recognize that there are people in our world that live lives very similar to the life of this woman. Live lives where they are let down by the social fabric that supports so many, but doesn't support all. We see this kind of drudgery and disappointment bubble up in a lot of different conversations. Conversations just like this one Jesus is having with this woman. When Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman, we are now talking about a conversation on race. When he's talking to a woman, we're talking about a conversation on gender. When you're talking to someone who does not have a stable home where she is supported, you're talking about poverty. All of those conversations are happening here between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And we see those same things happening in our lives today. Conversations about race and about immigrants and about gender and poverty, they all engage this drudgery, this disappointment. And a lot of people in our society today do not bear these conversations well. Today, conversations about race and immigrants and gender often erupt into blame and discrediting and diminishing, which I think is really telling for us, church, because Jesus spent most of his time and energy in conversations like these conversations across race, across gender, across socioeconomic status. And much like he does in this scripture today, but rather than people living, leaving those conversations, feeling upset or feeling bothered, they leave the conversations with Jesus feeling more hopeful and more fulfilled and more validated. We should be asking ourselves why we cannot engage in the same conversations Jesus engaged in and elicit the same response. In fact, we are eliciting the exact opposite. Uh, many of you here who have been around the church for a while know the name Harlan Redman. Uh, you know Harlan? Raise your hand. Oh, a few. Okay. 
apparently this is the Harlan fan club on this side. Um, Harlan is, uh, he is currently in seminary uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary. He has worked here. He was um, the executive director of Harambe for a long time. Um, he uh, is, is a great guy, and he's also an inquirer. He's in the process to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church. And so I had a chance to sit down and meet up with Redmond a couple, with Harlan a couple of weeks ago when I was in Princeton. And there's a lot of conversations happening about race in particular at Princeton Theological Seminary at the moment. And so I was asking him about how it felt to be on campus. And he said to me, he said, you know, he said, if you could imagine, he was trying to describe how he felt when he was engaging in these conversations about race. He said, you know, if you, in your marriage, kept on saying how you felt and your experience of things and how you were perceiving the world and how people were treating you and your husband never acknowledged what you were saying, never gave validity to the things that you were feeling, never came alongside you and said, you know, I, I, that must be hard, that, I understand that feeling. He said over time, in his exact words, over time, that'll do something to you which is a grave understatement, right? It really touched me in hearing about how for so many, having these conversations erupt because we cannot listen and trust to someone else's experience. We can't look at what someone else is going through and just say, man, you've had five husbands die on you or leave you or abandon you and the guy that you're stuck with now isn't even your husband. He's just some guy that you've been pawned off on. That really sucks. I'm really sorry. We can't even just say that. But if we could, if we could, which is what Jesus did, look at what changes. Jesus addressed the masks that are put on people by the social fabric, by the systems. And it was the thing that took up the majority of his time in his ministry mainly dealing with people who are engaged in systems of poverty. But rather than people erupting in anger over these conversations, people walked away from Jesus feeling hopeful. This story about the woman in the well, her experience, woman at the well, she wasn't in the well. Ugh, can't even blame the children's music this time. This story about this woman might not be a story about you and me. Not everyone feels like cogs in a machine. Not everyone is a nameless, anonymous, rejected person. Many of us in this room are more like Nicodemus. We are named, we're part of the crowd with access to enough authority and respect to create a reputation that we need to keep up. And so I think it's important for us to just recognize within ourselves, if we feel like someone knows our name, if we feel like we have a place in society, if we feel like we have a reputation that we need to keep up, we are not the woman at the well. But what's important for us to remember then is that Jesus did stand with that woman at the well. She, he recognized her. He gave validity to her circumstances, validity to her feelings, to what she was engaging. And by standing alongside her, accompanying her, trusting her, he changed her life without even changing any of her circumstances. 
Friends, if we are going to be proactive in taking off the mask, taking off our own masks, creating places where people can take off their masks and be safe, another element of that is us being able to recognize that there are masks that are put on others, that there are places where people are not seen and not heard, and for whatever reason, we've bought into the lie that we can't talk about it. If we can participate in taking off those masks of pretending and expecting that people who are in pain should pretend like everything's okay or should get over it because it happened a long time ago or should, 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 should. If we can stop that, then we too can be part of this kind of an exchange where someone, even though we aren't able to change their physical circumstances, where someone feels known and loved, where someone is seen, And out of being seen comes the belief. I'm going to invite you to join me as we pray and consider how the Spirit might be calling us to see those who have been invisible to us in the past. God, we are grateful for the way that you continually see the people that we are blind to. For the way that you have continually surrounded and embraced those who have been rejected or silenced or ignored. We are sorry for the times that we have been part of that rejection, of that ignoring, of pretending like whatever it is can't be all that bad, of not listening to our brothers and sisters who are trying to tell us about the hurt of their lives and who are trying to just get some validity, some acknowledgement, some acceptance, and some worth. May we be less caught up in our own comfort and more engaged and compelled by the lives of those around us, particularly when they say that something is not right. May we be active participants in taking off the masks that we all wear and smile Say that we're smiling when we're really not. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at um, San Marino Community Church, we have been having stories of faith. We've been asking people, both staff and congregants, to come up and to share something that's true about them. Um, Something that maybe we wouldn't know if we were just passing them in the courtyard. And so today, we have the privilege of Gary Roberts coming up and sharing a story from his life. Okay, well, um, thank you for that word, Jessica. That was was great. So um, I'm going to share a little bit about how I'm grateful. Um. First, I'm grateful to friends at the church who just share who they are and where they are. And um, there are some that come to mind. Uh, Second, I'm grateful for God being there for me in hard times. Um, I've kind of developed the opinion that when you're in your 50s, God just throws you curveballs. 
or life does, or, you know, something. Because, you know, I'm, uh, me and my 50s friends, we all have curveball stories, right? So, so one of my curveballs was uh, divorce. Not fun. Um, and even though the Bible is, you know, not a super fan of divorce, which, you know, which I'm okay with, um, I kept coming here. And, um, and I kept soaking in God's word. And uh, the pastors were really helpful through this divorce process. Uh, they helped me. They helped the whole family. It was kind of a wonderful, loving response. But going through that process and being here in this room among you was really good for me. So I'm pretty grateful for this place. Being able to hear the word of God and being blessed with the worship music helped me. I felt Christ meet me here. I remember on certain Sundays, I would be overcome with emotion during a song. And it wasn't a particular song. It wasn't a certain thing happening before I had walked in. It was just... I felt a strong sense of emotion and a sense that I was in a place that was safe and where I could feel Christ's hand. So at this point in my walk with Christ, um, Christ's love doesn't always make sense to me. It doesn't always kind of hit me with this full explanation, which I would really like, by the way, you know. <laughs> but it's here. It is here. And, um, and I'm so grateful that this has been part of that journey for me. So in addition to meeting me here, um, in this kind of curveball time, Christ helped me make some good decisions. Not all my decisions during this divorce were great, believe me. But I had some important decisions to make concerning my kids, and I really felt like Christ was there helping me make good decisions. Um, and I was very grateful for that. So when people ask me how I have experienced God in my life, I say, well, he was there for me when the earthquakes of my life struck. He comforted me and steadied me, and he helped me make some good decisions. And he showed up big time when I needed him most. And I assure you, I had not earned it. Too often, I forget about Christ during my work week. 
there are too many Friday nights where if I took an inventory of the Monday through Friday, Gary, there wouldn't have been a lot to brag about in terms of advancing Christ. But that didn't stop him from helping me. For that, I'm grateful. Thank you so much, Gary, for sharing that. Um, we are entering into uh, the part of our service where we get to offer back to God some of our gifts. So we're going to take an offering in just a little bit. So if you need to prepare for that, now is a great time. Um. Mm-hmm.